Welcome to Called, a podcast where we explore the intersection of ministry and the rest of our lives as church workers. I'm Bill Smoots. And I'm Sarah Bariza. Join us on the first and third Tuesdays as we talk about cutting out the BS and embracing the good. Between the two of us, we've ministered in churches for over 50 years, and we haven't burned out yet. (laughs) I've been a church musician all over the denominational spectrum, mainline, evangelical, Catholic. Basically, if they hire organists, I have probably worked for them. And I've pastored in primarily Presbyterian congregations, uh, but as of late in my life, it has been as an intentional transitional or interim pastor in United Church of Christ congregations. Today, we're talking about cultivating a personal openness to change, plus our reads of the week. So, if we're going to talk about change, I need to start with my favorite Presbyterian joke. So, Sarah, are you ready? Oh, 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 I'm ready. Okay. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Tell me. Change? What? Ding, ding, <laughs> Such a great joke, and it's so true because uh, yeah, um, and true in a lot of churches. It is, and in it a is. lot of people. You know, Presbyterians are often joked as is God's frozen chosen, uh, and some of that frozenness is because then you don't have to change or consider change. Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. I know it's brutal, but it's true. <laughs> I, I think as as people, we don't tend to like change, and then you put a whole bunch of us together in a congregation, and, and it you makes some change. Rules yes, and... and 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 it just makes change that much harder. Yeah. Mm. So we're going to start out by talking about what is change and why is openness to change important? So so in our conversation about change, one of the things that I'm aware of as as we've been talking through how we're going to have this conversation is that we have a lot of questions. I'm not sure we have that many answers. We've got some strategies, but not... We do have strategies, but... And I think some of that is the case because... Change is a very personal thing. We experience it at very personal levels. And so each of us is going to deal with it differently or in our own way. But I also think in in our wanting to talk about this today, we realize that that's a piece of our lives we need to think through. Mm-hmm. Are we open? important part of our lives. Are we open to change? How are we open to change? Can we accept change? Um, or do we just flee from it, stick our heads in the sand? I think one of the other reasons talking about change and openness to change is difficult is that much of this is really set in our childhoods or maybe even, you know, in our personality as we're born. So we come to this with kind of a set point in the way that like people have a set point of like, well, here, here's my general range of how happy I can be. And you can go up a little or down a little. I think with change, it's also like that. You have a general set point and you can move up some, but you're not going to radically alter who you are, most likely. And and if you do want to alter what you've learned about change, it, it's a push. It's mm-hmm. it's it's not a necessarily a simple thing. It's something you're really going to have to to work at. I think it's a good thing to work at, uh, but it is going to require. And we work. believe God answers prayer, <laughs> <laughs> and that we are people who live in hope. So another question is why is it important to be open to change, and especially why is it open important to be open to change as a church professional? And in this whole episode, we're really focusing in on ourselves, and not not Bill and me specifically, but ourselves, people who are leading in the church, and not really about how to get your congregation to get on board with that change that you want. We'll we'll save that for like a whole season long of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> But really today we're talking about how do, how do we cultivate that in our own selves as leaders in the church? That's right. That's so right. why is it important to be open to change? As I have journeyed through life, 
I find that there are a few constants. Uh, and the constants that I've come up with at this point in my life are death, taxes, the love of God, and change. And, and that, and, and that, I hope that's not too cynical, but, but change is just something that's going on all the time. And that's change within my body. That's change within, uh, the, the circle of people I love and care for. That's change within the body of a congregation I serve. It's change in our cultural crime. Cultural climate. Huge, huge. And, and, and you use the word climate, even change within our physical climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if we're not paying attention to change, and, and from a religious perspective, if we're not paying attention to where the Holy Spirit is inviting us into God's future, I think we really limit ourselves. We limit a church we serve. We limit um, our ability to be effective disciples of Jesus Christ. We'll get to uh, something called anxiety in a little bit. Um, But I think it's important to say right now that one of the reasons openness to change is important is that it makes you more mentally healthy and spiritually healthy because you're not sitting and cowering, worrying about what's going to happen, what's going to happen, because things are going to happen and change is going to happen no matter whether you worry about it or not. And and I often find in in my experience of serving churches that, that most of the most, many of the people around me, congregational members and friends, are really adverse to change. And if I, as a leader within a congregation, even as a paid religious professional, don't have some ability to imagine change, some ability to see myself walking into or through that change, and and don't have the ability to, to try and share that perspective with others, the, the whole system is just going to lock up that much faster. One of the most important things that I've read in my development as a young adult was a study from the early 2010s on change and how people don't think that they're going to change, but that they do. Anyway, so the study was basically set up as asking research participants if they had changed in the last decade. And everyone said yes. And they didn't mean just, has your environment changed? But have you personally, in your personality, in your values, have you grown? Have you shifted? Have you changed? And everybody said yes. And nobody tended to think that they were going to change in the next 10 years. Well, I've arrived at this point. And this happened no matter what decade the research participants were in. So you have 80-year-olds saying, oh, yeah, I've changed a lot since I was 70. No, I'm not going to change in the next 10 years. <laughs> and I read this I, early 2010s. I had um, just started dating my now husband. And when we both absorbed this information, it made a really profound effect on our relationship together because we realized, oh, this isn't about staying the same together. This is about changing together. And we don't expect to be married to the quote-unquote same person in 10 years because we're going to be different. So let's be let's learn to be different together. Let's change together and don't have this expectation of we're going to be the same in 10 years because we won't be. Oh, what a horrible expectation that would be for a marriage or or even for life. Yeah, for a whole life. Yeah, to think that to think that you'll be the same person with no growth potential. I understand why you would think I'm not going to change. Like I, for a long time, I thought, well, you know, once I'm like, you know, 25, I'll probably be about the, the person that I am. And I didn't expect that my environment would stay, stay the same. But I, I didn't really think, well, my, how, why would my values shift? Like, wouldn't I arrive at good godly values? And, uh, you know, and, and now I, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have so much room to grow. I have so much, my heart can get so much bigger. And I, I am not 
it's not that I was fearful of change in the past, but I just didn't anticipate that as such a wonderful, powerful thing in my life. For people of faith, I really think that that change that comes upon us, the reality of that, is tied to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we believe the Holy Spirit is um, active in our world and active in our lives, then we believe that then then, then we need to see that the Spirit is inviting us to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes dragging us, kicking and screaming to change. But as as the Spirit invites us to understand uh, God's purposes for us and for all of creation. That's going to involve change. Now, this is interesting because I think that this is true. And I think you can also say, well, it's also true that God is always the same or God never changes or God's love for us never changes, that we have these kinds of constants. I think sometimes in Christian environments, especially more traditional or conservative environments, change can be a bad word because it's, oh, no. I mean, I I grew up very conservatively. Oh, no, you're going to get all liberal. You're going to go down that slippery slope. You know, okay, well. The path to hell. (laughs) Basically. Um, Here I am. Um, but I, I do, I do think that and we love it's, you anyway. Oh, thanks. Um, and God does too, because God doesn't change. And I think that we can acknowledge that change can have multiple meanings. It's o- it's okay to realize that there are certain constants. There's the death and taxes. There's the love of God. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to change. Because if we are called to be conformed into the image of Christ, I sure hope you're going to change your whole life in the, in pursuit of that. That's that's part and parcel of the Christian walk is that we are walking, which, you know, that that's change. And and I don't believe that change ever ends. Mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah. think we ever get to a point of there's room to grow in grace. We've done it perfectly. Life. We we have become one with God. Uh, maybe death, uh, but but not in this world. And and when we get too self satisfied as individuals or as a congregation, watch out. That's that's where we're in dangerous territory. Now, I I want us to come back and talk at some point, not not in this one on on does God change or not. Uh, I I think that could be an interesting conversation Maybe. about the 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 changeability of God. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's just let's put that let's put a, make a little check by that and and circle back to that. Uh, let's talk about fear. Fear. Let's talk about fear, y'all. <laughs> there is so much of a connection between change and fear, and I'm. What do you think, Bill? Like, what about change makes triggers so much fear in us? I think because change is an unknown, and, and we are creatures of habit. We are. We want to know our environment. We want to. We want to be comfortable with the edges of that environment. Is that like a, a predator kind of thing. I, I, I think know it is. You know, a fight or flight forest. type, mm-hmm. a very primitive aspect of who we are as humans. And change is always inviting us out beyond those edges. And and, um, and so it, it's there's a there's an element of change That's that is out of the, fearful. Out of the comfort zone. It is out of the comfort zone. And so how do we react to that often? Um, you know, fear makes us angry, uh, or fear makes us anxious. And, and and I think those are very typical responses around the invitation to change. Um, that that's that that if we're if we're comfortable or or we're fearful, we'll we'll grow beyond. We'll be invited to change beyond our comfort. We get scared and we get angry about it. Uh, that's why church fights are often so ugly, uh, is because they're not based on anything logically. They're based on fear, fear often of change, uh, or we just get anxious and and anxiety eats us up inside and uh, anxiety in a system uh, like a congregation can eat it up 
in an instant. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's not pretty stuff. One, one of my favorite change stories in Scripture is, is the story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11. And Cornelius was the, Cornelius the was Gentile a Roman, who was Yeah, Roman a, Gentile. Um, and, and, but but a follower of God, and, and he heard the Holy Spirit or something? Well, he's, he, just, he starts having these visions of, you need to, to, to meet up with this Peter person, so send some of your folks to Joppa. And at the same time, Peter's having all these wild visions about all food being clean oh, that's right. and, yeah. and, and, and that somebody's going to be coming and he needs to go talk with them the and yeah, yeah, all those things. And so they, Peter goes with them, they have conversation. And while he's at Cornelius's house talking, he sees the, the text says, sees signs of the Holy Spirit. And, and in the, especially in the early days of the church, when the Holy Spirit appeared, that was the invitation to baptize. And so Peter sees signs of the Spirit. And so he baptizes all these Gentiles. Okay, then then the next the story continues with him going back to uh, the the folks in Jerusalem uh, where everybody was gathering, whether it was in the temple or in a separate group, but it was all the early followers of Jesus, uh, you know, which was basically a reform movement within Judaism still at this point, and. Uh, Peter's telling them this story. Oh, let me tell you how God has been using me. So he's talking about the, the, all the clean food and then going to see Cornelius. And he said, and signs of the Holy Spirit appear. And so I baptized him. And, and people were just loving the story and so amazed at how God was, was working through Peter. And when he said he baptized him, they said, what? Wait a minute. What did you say? And had this huge fight, um, that, that the text he only covers in like half a sentence or something. But, but it says, after much discussion, they decided that you know the spirit was leading them in in new direction but it was really about change and fear and just how powerful that is even within the faith community and the fear of an enemy yes yeah well and and you don't even have to have a name for the enemy mm-hmm. that the the enemy is often just unknown the, the fear of unknown is i've met the is, enemy and his name is unknown <laughs> and his name is us <laughs> uh, oh. the unknown side of us i think it's important for us as, as people and people of faith, but particularly as leaders in the church, to keep ourselves as open as we can to change. And, and not just change we like, uh, not just change that we're trying to lead, that we're comfortable with, but that we have to keep ourselves open to how is the, how is the Holy Spirit leading all of us? How, how can I be open to the change that my governing board uh, will bring that might not be where I think we need to go? How can I be open to change that somebody on a particular committee or area of ministry, a ministry team will offer? How can I even, as, as, as senior minister or head of staff, how can I be open to change that my uh, other staff members will suggest? This is really making me think of a metaphor of stretching and resilience, like in the way that if you keep your body limber, if you keep walking, if you keep moving around, then you can keep on keeping on. But if you, and this is just generally in a population study, if you aren't active, if you don't keep your body stretchy, well, you're not going to be walking so well when you're in your 70s and 80s. That's right. That that, that phrase that uh, motion is lotion for your joints. Mm, um, and, yeah. and and I think um, you could you could apply that to a mental uh, capacity too. If, mm-hmm. if you're not stretching yourself, if you're not um, trying to uh, take on change, you just slowly freeze up. And this is, we're thinking about strategies to cultivate change. And to me, it really comes down to looking for ways to change, even on, in a really small way. 
So I was um, listening to the philosopher Seth Godin, who you might know, he writes a lot about marketing. And he has proposed people's openness to change really falls on a bell curve shape. So you have people at the forefront, this top 10% or so, that's really looking for the new, excited about whatever the new thing is. You've got about 80% in the middle of they'll, they'll try something new once it's ready, once it's once you gotta, once once the technology works. And then you've got that last 10%, which is sometimes the loudest 10% of, you know, change over my dead body. <laughs> and you can't win against the last 10%, but most of the time in a church setting, you're working with people who are in that 80%. I think what's specifically interesting about this conversation, though, is that Seth Godin pointed out, we have a different openness to change depending on what the thing is. So here's an example. I'm really open to trying new food. I'm totally up for change in that kind of area. Am I up for change in technology? Um, that's that's a harder one for me. Um, so I actually have been intentional in seeking out. I learned a new software program this past year of my own free will and volition because I was like, you know what? I've been using the same one for like 18 years, and it's time for me to learn a new software program. But I think that when we can think of ourselves and think, well, where do I fit on the bell curve for this particular area? That can be really healthy because we might identify um, we might identify places where we're really good at accepting change and being open to change and think, oh, I can have that mindset here. I can have that mindset in another place too. And not just, especially if you're someone who's really reluctant to change or really fearful of change, if you can find the places where you're really open to it, capture that feeling, capture that mindset, and then think how you can work it into other parts of your life. You're so right in what you're saying, but it's so depressing because I want to just say, oh, I'm open to change and not have to acknowledge the reality that there are areas in my life where I'm really not that open, that yeah, I'm, and, I'm very and comfortable and self-satisfied. You don't always have to be open to all the changes. Sometimes it's like, well, it works. And if it's not broke, don't fix it. And But I, but I, yes, I don't know that's always very healthy, though. But I... I, I I think it's it's dangerous to even allow ourselves a few of those areas where well, I don't have to be open to change here because I don't want to be. I, I just think that starts us down a path of 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 you know freezing into. Um, it doesn't even have to be old age, just an age where we're, we're so tight and and so limited in the possibilities that we can see that it affects. Our bodies, it affects how we're capable of or not of providing leadership in, in our public lives uh, as, as church professionals. It just affects everything. And so I want to be real careful that, that we don't, I just see it as a slippery slope. And so I want us to be careful. Down the path to hell. There you go. Yeah, there you um, go. I have a totally unproven theory about this, which is that old people are no more resistant to change than young people. But because young people are so newly formed, we don't see that they're reluctant to change. Make sense? And I like think if there's you're 22, you're in the new fresh culture. So you might look like you're open to change because you're in that new fresh 22-year-old culture. But I, I don't think that this is anything about your openness to change. Some, some of the best lessons I've learned about change have come from 80 and 90-year-olds. And... and, and I so appreciate their wisdom and have tried to learn from that over time. So I, I, I agree. We can, we can be frozen in our, in our thinking at any age if we're not careful, if we're not intentional about cultivating that, that openness. Do you have other strategies for cultivating change? How have you done that in your own life? Certainly I read. Uh, I try and read a lot. Um, 
I, I had one of my mentors years ago talk about the importance of having friends across the age spectrum. Have mm, have yeah. friends who are older, have friends who are around your age, have friends who are very young. Uh, be interested in what high school and middle school and aged kids and what children are are excited about what they're learning what what's going on in their world just as you're excited about the wisdom of the the 80 and 90 and 100 year olds uh and and so i've tried to cultivate having friends in in different ages and and i think that's a huge help and and uh you know we we joke about it sitting around the staff table but the reality is i'm uh about twice the the age of the rest of the staff here at First Congregational. You're you're kind of my kid's age. And, and no, no, we're literally. literally yeah, you literally, yeah, not kind of, you're literally. <laughs> Our children are your grandchildren. Damn it, do you have to remind me of that? <laughs> and the the one of the advantages for me is you guys are are helping me and and pushing me to learn. Who would ever thought I'd be doing a podcast? Or or you know the the I love that the staff has taken on as their summer teaching project. Let's teach Bill how to do Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I think that that really comes down to like a general mindset of oh I'm willing to try new things because. You, you know, I've also worked with people who said, well, I knew how to do this computer program and I'm going to retire in five years and no way, no way are you going to get me into into something else. And where's that get you? It doesn't get you anywhere good. It, it just, you, you, you get disconnected from the world around you. So how do you deal with the difficulty of it and the time suck of learning new things? And I'm just thinking, like, we're talking about computer software. I think that it's easy for us to pick computer software because there's always something new. Um, but this is just an example of how it applies in our lives. And we've both recently taken a lot of time to learn something new. And and given, in my case, like a lot of, I wouldn't say emotional labor, but just like willingness to be frustrated. And you do have to be in a an okay place to say, well, I'm going to do this really frustrating thing over and over again until I learn how to do it. You, you may be on to, to something when you say, you know, being in a better place. I, I think if I was in a place where the major pieces of my life were up in the air. Yeah. Um, you know, health crises or, or something within yeah, my family system or, or moving no. or, or I just wouldn't have the capacity to say, okay, now I'm going to intentionally learn new software or, or learn a new way of communicating. I just couldn't do it. Um, but because I'm in a place right now where there is some relative stability, it's much easier for me to, um, to imagine change or, or to, to learn some new things. And, and, and so we shouldn't minimize the fact that, that not every moment of our lives or season of our lives is, is right for us embracing change more fully. This said on the other side of the coin is sometimes you're just thrown into change. Hey, you are going to move to this new city for this new job. Done. And maybe you didn't even choose it because you're following a spouse. Yeah, or, or the job you had and thought you would continue to have for a long time is just gone away. Yeah. And what's next or, or what, what's your next act? And you, you just have to, to throw yourselves in. And I think this is where cultivating that openness can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Having that limber approach, that flexibility. Nimbleness. Yeah, that nimbleness. nimbleness. Yeah, and yeah. It, just, it lets you go in whatever that next chapter is. You, you've got some stretch, some give in your life, and you can walk into it. And, and hopefully some sense that you will survive, 
that 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 because you've survived it before. They're, they're, yeah, they, because yeah. you've survived it before, mm-hmm. or because because you've you've been able to handle small pieces of change when the larger ones come. Um, it's scary. It's disorienting. All those things, but there is still some sense of I can get through this. I can I can I can see there's a future or I can trust the people Jesus around me, me or, or trust, trust that God still has purpose for me yeah, yeah. And, and that there will be a future. I laugh, but I mean that seriously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've really been focusing here on our personal openness to change and how important it is to cultivate openness in our own selves as church leaders. But I think that we can also think about, without talking about like congregational change, thinking about how our openness to change can help our fellow staff members, and other church leaders to help them be open to change. At the very least, I think we're a model uh, for for good or for bad uh, in all sorts of things, and and change is just one of those. And and if a, a staff member with a committee or with a, a board um, can be staring at some significant change and seem okay or, or not be freaking out. I think that gives permission to the other people at the table to step back and take that deeper breath and say, well, if he or she can um, think about this, maybe I can too. Or maybe we as a group can as well. This comes back to the fear and anxiety, because if you are letting yourself become anxious about change, you're sharing that anxiety with everybody around you. And probably if they're remotely empathetic, they're also feeling some of that with you because they're empathetic and not a sociopath, and you know. So your your emotional energies are changing what's in the room, what's in the what's in the staff team. Oh yeah, yeah. Years ago, I knew a Methodist pastor, John Savage, and and he was doing consulting work. And one of his great lines was, "You cannot not tell your story." And so imagine if you're uh, an anxious pastor who's up in the pulpit week after week, you're just bleeding anxiety through your sermons uh, or through your prayers. Um, if you're if you're an anxious musician and leading the choir, you're going to be bleeding that anxiety into your choir. It just it's human nature, and so we have to pay attention to to where we are and and how we are, um, and and be careful about that. Yeah. Um, if, if I'm too anxious, then I need to, to you know, be careful about what I'm preaching. Uh, I need to, I need to stay, about, stay away from topics that are only going to make me more anxious or the stuff that's got me all churned up. And you know, maybe I run to the lectionary at that time, or, or, or maybe I, you know, let's talk about what it means to be a, a good disciple of Jesus, something like that. What we model as church leaders, what we model together as a staff team is really critical and that we need to pay attention to that and be intentional about that. You know, a staff team is obviously not the parent of a church, right? So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying a staff team is exactly like parents, but a staff team has a huge impact on the climate of a church in the way that parents set the emotional tone for a home. Yes. So for our listeners, how have you cultivated an, an openness to change in your life? Do you have specific practices that you follow, strategies that you've tried? We would love to hear. We're at calledpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, because we need your ideas desperately. <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing this because we want some new ideas. No, we, we, we have some ideas that work for us, and, but we know they're not, 
they don't work for everybody. We're, mm-hmm. we'd, we're all different people. Yeah. And, and, and we've all, all got different bell curves and different places that we sit on them. And would love to hear what works for you because I think that's important information to share uh, with others. Bill, should we talk about our reads of the week? Oh, let's do. Let's do. For a lot of years, I have been reading books by Guy Gavriel Kay, who is a science fiction writer. I first became interested in him through uh, a church member many churches ago. I was talking about enjoying uh, the readings, uh, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's readings. And, and this person said, oh, if you love Tolkien, you'll love this author. This author even helped after Tolkien died to begin to put together some of his writings in what became the book, The Silmarillion. Oh, cool. So that's just for the little Tolkien geeks out there. Nice. Um, and, and and so is, I, is this the point at which I say I'm really glad that my husband didn't tell me that he was into the Silmarillion until after we had started dating and we're already in a committed relationship? I just think that speaks to his wisdom. <laughs> He's a good guy. Yeah, you were already lured in before before that geekdom <laughs> came out. No, it, but I what I enjoy about Kay's books is that he's a great storyteller. And his most recent book is called A Brightness Long Ago. It's He always sets his stories in fictional towns that are based on kind of historical reality or historically real periods and areas. And so this this book is set in 14th, 15th, 16th century um, Eastern Italy uh, around, um, we would say Venice, he has a different name for that town. And it's all about the, the political realities and the, the kind of the, the fights between the little city-states that, that was Italy at that time. But it's set uh, with a, a person who is probably in his early 60s, maybe, maybe as old as 70, and, and an event in a, in a meeting that he's having triggers a life of his memories. And, and the story is him thinking back through all these memories, people he'd known, decisions he made, uh, some intentionally, some in the spur of the moment, and how they've continually shaped his life. Uh, and how some of those choices were, um, completely accidental and and just kind of that's how things happen luck and and others of those choices were were very intentional and they have sometimes caused good things to happen and just as often caused bad things to happen in his life so i think the question is is does he have a personal openness to change i think he does there's a lot to be learned from novels and in how, how a created character. I, I hadn't thought about this novel in relation yeah. to that question. I'd like to go back. I just, what, what I was so impressed with was how powerful our stories can be in our lives. And it's the stories, both as they played out, and our stories as we choose to remember them. And there are examples in the book of where a story has just continued to play out. A choice somebody made as a young person has played out throughout their whole life. Or examples of where an intention to tell a story in a certain way, trying to seek a particular personal or political advantage, can really color a lot of events that cascade from that that choice about a story in not always good ways. Can to talk about U.S. history books? Ah, uh, um. well, <laughs> we we could, but but I, I, I recommend anything by Kay. I, awesome. I I love his stuff and A Brightness Long Ago. It's it's a great read. You will. I want to picture the cover. It's really gorgeous. If if you like good stories, 
uh, or and a good storyteller. I think this will intrigue you. Awesome. What about you, Sarah? So I've got something completely different. Uh, it's a book I read recently called Status, Ambition, and the Way of Jesus. It's by Craig C. Hill, and he was at Duke Divinity School for a while, and now he is the dean of the Perkins School of Theology at SMU. And he has this great forward or uh, he has this great introduction in the book where he points out that he pokes fun at uh, D- divinity school deans. And um, then after his book was off at the publisher being edited, he got offered this job and was like, oh, well. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, status and Karma can here really he is. get you sometimes. Yeah, and, and so he pointed out that he didn't change any of that. He just left it in. But now he's one of those one deans. Of those deans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting take because he's arguing that status and ambition are not good or bad in and of themselves. They just are. And when we really get into trouble is when we seek status, like our ambition drives us to, st- to seek higher status as a way of making ourselves better than other people. Mm. And that's really where, the, where the, the crux of the problem is. And he's a New Testament scholar, so he purposefully is not looking at Old Testament texts about this, but just New Testament. It's, by, it's published by Erdman, so it's a more scholarly text. Um, but really interesting take on something that all of us have. And he also argues that people who are in church ministry have at least some level of ambition because you got to have some gumption. You got to have some get up and go to want to be a pastor, to want to be a, a leader in a church. And he also argues that we all have certain kinds of status because we are, t- we tend to be educated, and we tend to be well. We're the leaders in the church, so we're privy to certain kinds of personal information. We are maybe held up as like people who know something about God. Like we we have status that's implied in our roles. So how do we how do we negotiate that? How do we care for the people that mm. are around us and don't mm. abuse that ambition? Don't abuse that status. And and I would also say that often um, we have access to people in authority or in power, whether mm-hmm. that's in a in a corporate world or in a political world, and that how we handle that access um, can, again, it can be a good thing or it can be a really mm-hmm. bad thing. Yeah. So if this is something that you've thought about, I, I think it's a really helpful, a really helpful book thinking about, oh, I mean, he's not a a fundamentalist, but you know, well, what does the Bible actually say about this? Like, just a sense of like he's a New Testament scholar and like looking at this textually. What what are the different words for boasting in the Greek? And mm. you know that that kind mm. of level of nuance. It's really really fascinating. Because I think I when think is boasting it, a good thing? I think a lot of religious leaders have and this is a strong word, but have prostituted themselves uh, to get at, to gain access to politicians oh, over for time. Sure. And, yeah. and and all all across the the political and theological spectrum, not just picking on any one group, mm-hmm. and and yeah. that that's a great temptation. Um, I I want access to that mm-hmm. power. Or I want access to that what I what I perceive to be that shininess. Mm-hmm. And that can also be the case for church members. I want to join this church because it's going to be politically advantageous to me. It's going to be socially advantageous to me. And generally speaking, it is socially advantageous to be part of a church because. You've got a network here. But if that's your motivation for choosing one church over another, like that's something that we should caution our congregation congregations against. Amen. Amen. So that's it for this week's installment of Cult. Look for new episodes on the first and third Tuesdays of the month. You will find show notes at calledpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying this show, please share it with your ministry buddies and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Bill Smoots. And I'm Sarah Bariza. Until next time, cut out the BS and embrace the good 
even if that involves a little change. <laughs>